ExxonMobil is the second largest oil company in the world with over $400 billion of top line revenue. In last fiscal year, they made $76 billion of adjusted free cash flow. Now, how much is this stock worth? The oil market is expecting oil prices to come down a little bit, but with global tensions, who knows what's gonna go on? What price should you be buying ExxonMobil at to truly maximize your return? We're gonna crunch the numbers. You ready? Let's get to work. Welcome to Rational Investing. My name is Cameron Stewart, CFA. Thank you very much for taking the time and watching the channel. Don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button. Helps me out. I greatly appreciate it. Now, where did ExxonMobil come from? I want to start this with zooming way back to the 1800s. The great standard oil, John D. Rockefeller, the, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, all the basic oil companies you see today came from Standard Oil. It was quite amazing. At the turn of the 20th century, Standard Oil was broken into a series of stocks uh, to break up the monopoly, which was Standard Oil. Those stocks end up kind of over time merging back together to form Chevron, Exxon, and BP, and Marathon as the four outputs, all of which came from Standard Oil, Kentucky, California, New York, New Jersey, Indiana, Ohio, and the Ohio Company. Those companies over time merged back and now we have the beasts. The beast that we're going to talk about today is ExxonMobil producing, as I said at the outset, four hundred billion dollars of top line revenue last fiscal year 2022. This review is as of basically January 24, so we're waiting for the full year numbers to come out, but we have a pretty good gauge of how they've been doing. If you're new to the channel, thank you so much for watching. Hit the subscribe button. This is a value investing channel. We do deep dives into stocks. And I teach you how to look at stocks from a cash flow perspective. There are no bulls and bears here. I'm not hitting buttons and having things fly around. And I'm certainly not bouncing from stock to stock. This is a long form view on how to do a deep dive in stock and hopefully protect your underlying investment a little bit to give you a little more comfort on owning a stock. And when you are buying a stock, you want to think of yourself as a partner. You are buying into a company as kind of like a partnership. You're not flipping this, selling it six months, a year later. No, no, you're holding this for 10, 20, 30 years, maybe even passing your to your children. That is what you should think of as a stock investor. And that's the kind of lens that we take looking at a 10-year outlook. All right, I'm going to dive into some metrics here. We're going to go through the cash flow of ExxonMobil. We're going to look over 10 years, and I'm going to use the data that we have in the cash flow club to show you kind of the analysis that we do there. If you have not seen that, definitely check out my website, cashflowinvestingpro.com. All right, the very first thing I want to talk about with oil is where are we with oil in demand? What does global oil demand look like? Behind me, we have global oil demand. It has continued to grow in 2020, obviously it took a dip, fat, a big dip from the pandemic, but it has recovered and global oil has continued to grow, to go higher. Global demand is increasing for this product despite a lot of the EV and despite a lot of the mantra that's out there online, global oil consumption continues to rise. Now, what is crude oil used for? So here we can break down a barrel of oil into its components. 24% is for gasoline, 27% uh, is diesel. You've got jet fuel, heavy fuels in here for about 10% combined. Asphalt, which is an interesting one, that's 4%. Light fuels, hydrocarbons, and other. This other bucket includes things like paints and candles, uh, waxes, all kinds of other uh, plastics, 
other polymers that we use every day all over throughout our, our lives come from about this 10% of the uh, uh, barrel of oil. So there's lots of different components. Obviously, fuel oil is the is the, the the major one, but I think it's good to start with. Hey, what is global demand for this commodity doing? It's going up, and what are the breakdowns for that uh, for that commodity? Now, who are the biggest producers of oil? Really quickly, uh, more data from the Cash Flow Club. Just want to break this down by country: United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia are some of the biggest oil producers in the globe, uh, followed by perhaps. Canada, UAE, Iran, uh, and Iraq are some of the other uh, kind of rounding out the major producers. All right, how do we figure about pricing for oil, right? The, the, the underlying earnings, the revenue of an oil company like Exxon is going to be very highly correlated to the price of oil, obviously. They'll use future contracts to try to hedge it, but over time, those contracts roll off and eventually you kind of come down or go up to the spot price of oil. This is West, West Texas Intermediate, uh, WTI, and a forecast by the EIA. Now, I've looked at these forecasts for many, many years, and they're just as good as if you or I sat down and made a guess, honestly. Like I never I never really know what to believe here. They're saying, hey, there's a slight downturn coming and they've got a, a wide range of possible outcomes. So that's just like throwing throwing you know a dart in the air. Uh, we don't really know. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna use historical um, cash flows to kind of price this. In 2020, we had the absolute craziest thing I've ever seen in my life with a front month contract for Brent crude oil was negative and people were talking about Exxon and, 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 and Chevron having to merge together, which now is just laughable when you think about it. But at the time, the, the market was absolutely bonkers and the stock price collapsed. It would have been an amazing time to load up. Uh, had you been watching this channel, maybe you did. Uh, but um, it would have been an amazing time to load up on that wonderful stock. And always in the cash flow club, right? We drop in the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow. They're always here for you. And we put up some charts to kind of give you a feel for kind of what this stock does over time. I'll show you a couple stocks that I think are really interesting. Uh, one, here's quarterly revenue for the last decade to kind of show you the pattern. It does, it does really move up and down. Uh, let's see, and the quarterly EBITDA numbers as well will kind of move up and down with revenue. And of course, when oil spikes, they make a, a, an absolute S ton of money. All right, this is a neat chart. I like this one a lot. Uh, this just shows revenue in the blue bars over time. This is a decade, so you can kind of see revenue come down and come back up, somewhat flat from peak to peak over the last decade. You've got the the or the red line is the normalized EBITDA margin, and you can see it spikes here when where, when when oil price spiked, and it bottoms here in 2020 when uh, when the front month contract for oil was negative and the world absolutely panicked about what was going on with oil. And then you've got the actual holy grail here, the free, the adjusted free cash flow margin. It's it's sitting around say two to five and a half percent yield, uh, uh, excuse me, margin over time. And it went negative when people were freaking out and it went positive, uh, absolutely crushed it last year at 14 and a half percent. But this is going to give you context for like range of, of outcomes and how to normalize over time. If you are betting, if you're valuing the stock here, well, last year's earnings were an all time high in the margin. You might not want to say, hey, we're north of this thing. You might want to bring that down and normalize for something if you're going to hold this stock for a decade. 
So here's another fun chart. This one shows dividends that are paid in blue every year. And the orange is the stock buybacks. And you can see they're pretty methodical with how they buy back stock and when they do it. And when they have a tremendous amount of excess cash, which they did here and they he and here, they bought a lot of stock back. That's, a, in my opinion, pretty good discipline. I would have liked them to see st buying stock here when it was an all-time low. But I guess if earnings are negative, it's tough for them to really do that. A lot of dividend investors will only value stocks here, and that ignores the rest of the free cash flow that business generates. If you're a dividend buyer and you look at dividend yield constantly, I would ask you to zoom out slightly, take a look at the free cash flow yield as a total, and value companies on free cash flow because that is truly what the business is valued on, and that's what is used to pay the dividend is the free cash flow. You all, but 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 just focusing on the dividend would miss the cash flow they use to buy back stock, which is a benefit to you. All right, let's dive into the one pager. So at the Cash Flow Club, we produce one pagers. What's a one pager? It's literally a one page summary on a stock we, where we have 10 years of historical financial information, a 10 year forecast, a write up and some chart to gonna give you a feel for the context behind what we're trying to do. And we focus on only a few metrics because there are literally hundreds of different financial metrics that you can that you can focus on and can distract you from the true value of a business, which is its free cash flow. A lot of finance PhDs have made a lot of uh, recognition creating all kinds of metrics because they have to for their PhD thesis. But that doesn't mean that, that, that it should be used or it supplants what is the original value of a stock, which is its ability to generate free cash flow and the estimate of that free cash flow into the future. So putting a lot aside a lot of the nonsense, we focus on five key attributes. Number one, I want to see top line revenue growth. Number two, I want to see earnings growth. We use EBITDA for earnings. I'll explain later, but you can use anything else. Uh, but it's at the enterprise level. It's not earnings per share. You want strong free cash flow. You want a low debt. The company has very little debt. And you want to buy the company at a well price. The well price thing is the key. It's the bit of the market timing, a little, little art in the science that you need to find. If you get those five right, that checks the box for us at this channel. And it warrants further due diligence. It warrants additional research and work to see if it's truly a great investment. Uh, but for this channel being my vlog and just me, my opinion, which is not stock advice, by the way, seek professional counsel. Um, but this is just a way to look at it that I do as an investor, as a CFO for, for a profession. Uh, so here we go. Let's start with revenue down here. So revenue has grown for the last decade at minus 1%. You saw that in the chart where it was two peaks where oil prices were kind of spiking at either ends of the decade. So they produced $420 billion of revenue in 2013 and basically $400 billion of revenue in 2022. Between there, it, your ups and downs as a commodity does, you cannot expect this business to be a... Um, uh, you know, this is not for the weak of heart, in other words. Uh, on earnings, what have they been able to do with that? Well, at $420 billion of revenue in 2013, they made $57 billion of EBITDA. EBITDA is, enter, is earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization. It's a proxy for cash flow on the in income statement, a very bad one because it, it excludes CapEx. This is a capital intensive business. I'll get there, but it's a metric that we can use because a lot of other investment banks, a lot of other acquisitions, a lot of other companies report EBITDA and we can use it as a relative metric, 
but not a source, not a replacement of cash flow. So this has actually gone up by 5% annually over this decade with a spike of at uh, $91 billion last year when they absolutely crushed earnings. But you can see here in 2020, when earning, when the front month of oil contract was negative, they only made, only made $17 billion of cash flow. But I will say one thing, that number, uh, not cash, EBITDA, $17 billion of EBITDA. But I want to say one thing is that number is positive. So even at a generational uh, collapse in oil price, something I've never seen in my life where the front month of oil is negative, uh, they still managed to squeak out a measly $17 billion. So safety, that might check the box here if you're a long-term conservative investor that if you're not going to sell it and you hang on to it, that stock rebounded from $17 billion of profit to $91 billion in profit in three years. So never write off the oil companies. Debt level, debt level has grown from $22 billion to $46 billion, a doubling over the last decade. On average, that's about an 8% annual clip. On earnings that are growing at 5% annual, so that's decent uh, outpacing of debt, but it's still, relative to earnings, very, very reasonable. If we zip over here the metric debt to EBITDA, where we look at the number of years it would take the company to buy down their debt, this is a relative metric for bankruptcy or financial risk or troubling. Uh, corporate invest, uh, banks will lend three times EBITDA is generally what they look at. That's considered a senior loan. So we want a stock that has less than three times debt to give us nice cushion. And you can see this number has averaged 1.4 times over the decade with a high of 4.3, which would be out of our range, right? That's above the three only when they have historically low, like generational low oil prices, does this metric fall out of our bounds. But be, be, between those times, it's perfect. That's what you want. That's why you want a company with low debt is because life throws a curveball, And on the, on the one year that you're holding this thing, it absolutely craters, the earnings were still profitable. And this leverage metric while above the three was not 10 and they were easily able to continue on and bring that back down next year. So this is an example of why you want a company that's not heavily leveraged to protect yourself as the stock owner. That's the debt piece. If I uh, Excess cash, I'm not giving them any excess cash at the moment. Market cap, shares outstanding times price. Market cap, $429 billion in 2013. $450 billion in 2022. So basically a flat market cap. Enterprise value is basically the same here of just adding market cap and debt. So you got enterprise value of 452, kind of dips down to a low of maybe 200, a quarter, quarter trillion, 251 billion of enterprise value in 2020 at the bottom of this market. And it bounced back up to almost $500 billion or half a trillion dollar valuation in 2022. I'm going to pause here. Let's go over and pause and say, what is the enterprise value? The enterprise value is simply the combined value of the business. If you buy a home, if you're gonna to go to the bank, get a loan for home, the price you pay for the house is the enterprise value of the house. You're gonna to go to the bank, I'm assuming you don't pay all cash for it, you're gonna to go to the bank and you're gonna borrow 80% 
and you're gonna put down 20%. The, the cash that you put down on the home, that's the market cap of the house. The market cap plus the debt is the enterprise value of the house. What trades in the stock market is just your down payment. It's just the market cap. So you wanna be very careful when you're looking at stocks that you're not ignoring the generally very large piece of debt that's sitting out there that most stock investors ignore. That here for ExxonMobil is just shy of $50 billion. In terms of scale, that's nothing to ExxonMobil. They, they made $91 billion in one year, so they could completely erase the cash. But there are many, many companies out there that are way over leveraged. And that's going to be a problem when their earnings fall. So I always want to make sure you look at enterprise value, not market cap. But let's keep going to our metrics. So the enterprise value to EBITDA is a relative metric. Is why you use EBITDA. It's a relative value metric to have how many times a year of earnings are you paying for this at the enterprise level. We're not using earnings per share here. This ranges at 10 times enterprise value. And it's as high, a high of 18, right? 18 to be a high multiple. It's 18 years in the future of earnings you're essentially paying for the stock. So you better get some, some, some growth out of that to, to bring, you don't wait 18 years to break even in air quotes. Uh, and as a low of 5.4, 5.4 is a very, very cheap business for a company that's doing over a, over a bill, uh, $91 billion a year in EBITDA. It's probably that cheap because this is not expected to sustain itself over time. The 91 billion will probably normalize and come down as oil comes down. The question is, what's the long-term proper uh, value for oil? And I would say looking at this and averaging the last decade is probably a decent benchmark to say, hey, I'm willing to I'm willing to buy this company if I can value it cheaply on an average of last 10 years because we've had an ultra low and an ultra high of oil in that period. That'll give me kind of a way of normalizing. Let's get to the rubber where the rubber meets the road. Free cash flow, the absolute, uh, you know, gem of a gem, the value, what everyone wants. My favorite cash flow, your favorite cash flow, the cash flow statement. Let's dive right into this. The first one I want to pull is the cash flow from operations. If you're looking at cash flow statement, there are three sections: cash flow from operations at the top. It's usually highlighted in bold. It says cash flow from operations. Cash flow from investing in the center, cash flow from investing, it's bold. And then cash flow from financing is the third at the bottom. You want to pick the first one, cash flow from operations here. We make a couple adjustments at the cash flow club for things like stock buybacks. Uh, I want to expense them and treat them as they are. That will kind of punish some of these uh, tech companies that like to mask the employee comp by adding it back. Um, but we like to expense that. So. Let's dive in here. We got adjusted free cash flow, $44 billion uh, in 2013 when they made $53 billion of EBITDA. I like that they're both positive. I like that the EBITDA is or the free cash flow from operations is close to the EBITDA. That's nice to see. Uh, that number has come down as low as ooh, $14 billion uh, when the, with the all time bottom of the bottom market when the front month contract was negative in 2020. Uh, that's how little they made in cash from running the business is $14 billion. And then, and then of course, it sprang back up to $76 billion of cash last year from operations when they made $91 billion of EBITDA. So still that pattern 
is when, when EBITDA goes up, I want to see a lot of that EBITDA come through to the free cash flow statement. That means, in my opinion, the accounting team is doing a good job checking and expensing expenses properly. If you see EBITDA or the income statement going up, but the cash flow is going down, they should move in tandem, up and down together. That, to me, means the accounting team is not playing games. Uh, it's a nice little smell check of what's going on. So last year, they made $76 billion of adjusted free cash flow. What's next? Well, CapEx. You have to put money back in the business to keep the machine going, to keep these oil derricks pumping out cash. That needs to be you know, lubed and ready to go. That thing needs to be cranking. So this that this eighteen billion dollars is is uh, you know building derricks, going in the ocean, building out big oil tankers, uh, you know, buying oil tankers. All that stuff is in there, and maintaining it is all part of that maintenance capex. It's an absolute must. Uh, you don't want a business that's just gutting that to spike cash flow. That's going to be kind of temporary and will will hurt the business long term. So 18 billion, what's left from this is like, what's that, 55 billion, something like that, of free cash flow that they that they generated. Uh, if I take cash flow from operations minus CapEx. What's next here is the debt payment. We'll look at this if a company is over leveraged, we will say that they have to buy down debt. In this instance, you can see debt's positive here where they're borrowing money and debt's negative here where they're paying down money. But in the end, because the leverage here is so cheap, so small, I can kind of ignore this and think that if they just hold, if they don't do anything with debt, uh, that's fine with me. Cash flow operations, less CapEx will flow through to the shareholders, you and I, and that's what we want to value the business on. So as I said earlier, last year in 2022, they made $76 billion of adjusted free cash flow operations, minus $18 billion is $58 billion of um, cash flow that you can value the stock on. So that's 58 billion here. Shares, shares outstanding 4.2 uh, billion. I'll just divide by 4.2 on a little calculator. That gives me uh, 58 billion divided by, I think that's a million actually, four two zero there. Gives me $13.70, so 80 cents per share of free cash flow, $13.80. If I ignore the debt payments, right, these numbers here I'm showing with the debt, but if you back that up because they don't need to actually buy down the debt, what's left? 13 bucks. How do you value the this, this share? You can apply a yield to that or a multiple on that um, on that free cash flow and you get the stock price. That's kind of what we're doing here. Here's the stock price, 106 bucks. I divide, this is 1201 by 106 and I get 11% yield. This yield is what you earn as the investor. You don't get to keep all of it. You get some as a dividend, some is used to buy back shares and others used for say acquisitions or other such or sits on the balance sheet in cash. But this is what you're trying to yield. Now you'll notice that this is super high and we think that we said that they made an all-time high cash, $76 billion. That's most likely not going to continue. The EIA has a downward forecast. We're seeing oil prices come down a little bit. So I would expect if you're buying the stock to not value it on last year, that's being too uh, simplistic. You need to zoom out. And what I did is I said, well, if I took all 10 years here and I averaged those, what do I get to give me kind of a baseline of this company? So if I average the last decade of adjusted free cash flow, because oil is going to go up, it's going to go down. 
I got $37 billion of adjusted free cash flow. They put $21 billion back into CapEx, which less $15 billion of free cash flow that I can expect over the long term out of this business. If I divide that by the current shares outstanding, I get $3.65 per share. That's what I would value this business on. If I applied a standard yield to that, let's say I said we've got $3.65 on the old calculator um, for free cash flow, and I look over these yields, and I say, oh, I need about 5.5% to the average yield. I'm going to divide by 0.54, and I got a price of $67.59. That, to me, is a 10-year averaged earnings and average multiple that if you can get this stock around $70 a share, it's a great deal. Well, let's see. Let's go down. Let's see how has this stock been trading over the last period of time. Well, it's currently at 100 and some odd a share. Okay, that's probably in the high end of this spectrum. If I bring it down at 40 bucks, that is the absolute you know, pandemic era low, negative front month contract. Never seen that cheap in my life since stock. By the way, I was buying it down here. Um, if it's at 70 bucks, right, that's a decent value for this company where you can feel protected over time as this stock will move up and down. And this here is the second part, the last part of the, of the one pager where we do a forecast EBITDA and free cash flow. We string them out. I've got, a, I've got negative growth here for the couple years as oil comes down. I expect earnings to come down. I expect free cash flow to come down. I can apply an average multiple or yield to this, and I get a long-term estimate of this stock at about $103 a share. What's well, basically where it's trading right now. So I think this stock is fully priced. Um, I get a stream of cash flow, and I get an IRR of 9%, which you can't see because the screen is being cut off, but just take my word, it's 9%. That is, that's, that's telling me that the, that the stock market is basically right pricing this, this stock because a 9%, um, a 9% return is basically the stock market's S&P 500 long-term return. So I think the market is correctly pricing the stock, and it's not a tremendous value for us. If as time moves on, as stocks do, right, these are volatile assets, people pay pandemic, all kinds of, they panic. Uh, if you find this stock later on, you're watching this video and you're like, oh, um, I've got a little distribution chart down here. If this is in the 70s range, you're looking at a 15% IRR. So that's 15% that's on your money every single year for a decade. That is a tremendous return. And I think at that point, it would be a good investment. If you're doing the oil and you like the volatility, I'll give it the good. Um, if you want something that's got some protection, some downside, this is definitely a conservative stock, albeit high earnings volatility as oil moves. But I think right now the stock market is right pricing this, and I would wait for a better opportunity or continue to wait as the stock market kind of ebbs and flows uh, and presents you with a new opportunity. So. Welcome to 2024. Happy to be back. Uh, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the review of ExxonMobil, an absolute beast. One of the biggest oil companies, the second biggest oil company in the world. Uh, an extra absolute juggernaut in the global stage. And as oil conflicts happen, if uh, the United States experienced inflation again, 
uh, you know, the, the oil is dollar denominated and will rise and keep above inflation. So consider that as you're looking at kind of protecting your assets over time. What has pricing power? Well, a, a barrel of crude oil does quite nicely. If you like this review, I highly recommend you check out my website, cashflowinvestingpro.com. I teach uh, two different courses. I teach a course where I'll give you my Excel financial model and I'll teach you how to value stocks, how to create an investment por portfolio, and how to, how to look for free cash flow, how to read a 10K. We go through the Apple stock and I dissect how to get revenue, earnings, free cash flow, debt levels, how to forecast, what multiples you should be using to give you a foundation that you can use to build a, for, a, a portfolio and to build a financial model for every single stock in your portfolio. I then teach a second course if you want to be have a career in investment banking, if you want to go into corporate finance, if you want to go into private equity. I teach an Excel financial modeling course where I'll teach you how to run Excel with just a keyboard and no mouse. Uh, we will build out the three statement financial model, the appreciation schedule, debt schedules, all of that with no mouse. I'll show you how to do it so you can do it in probably 30 minutes. You should be able to build a financial model basic from a company in 30 minutes from, from blank screen to done with, a, with an IRR if you expect to get into investment banking or private equity. But it's a fantastic uh, course that will allow you to put that on your resume uh, that you can use Excel with no mouse. You can build the, the three statement financial model and you will get an interview. So check that out on my website. Uh, those two courses are fun or sign up for the Cashflow Club if you just want uh, one pagers and have our analysts kind of kind of throw out ideas at you. This is Rational Investing. My name is Cameron Stewart. Let's review quickly before we leave. Let's review Exxon Mobil for the five key factors. Number one, top line revenue growth. Is top line revenue growth growing? Uh, not really. No, not right now. It's it's not. So I can't check the box. Earnings are growing. Uh, strong free cash flow. Yes. Low debt. Yes. Well priced. Um, no. I can't check that one either. So right now as it stands, I'm not going to be buying it. I gave it a good rating if it gets in the 70s range. I think if it comes down, the odds of it coming, you know, the oil price coming back up as it ebbs and flows is good. But at this stage of the moment, I'd wait. Wait for the good opportunity. They come up once in a while in your lifetime. And when, when you are ready, you will see it. You'll, th you'll say that is a great deal because you've been studying the company for decades. You ready? Uh, thank you very much for the time. Hit the subscribe button. Uh, don't forget to throw a comment down below. Helps the old algorithm in the Google. Um, let me know what stock you want to do. Uh, we did next, and I'm happy to take recommendations. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye bye.